So we need to understand better when and why explainability or scrutability would be useful and how we can build systems so that we provide that. One area of focus is indeed the users that needs to understand the systems that they are using and, and the recommendations, but we need to remember that the explainability also matters for the developers. Welcome to Solar Spotlight, the podcast from the Society for Learning Analytics Research, Solar. In this podcast series, we have conversations with guest speakers to engage the wider community with leading research, practice, and key issues in learning analytics. I'm Shibani Antonet from the University of Technology, Sydney, the host for this episode. Machine learning and artificial intelligence models built around educational data can sometimes be a black box, not providing actionable and interpretable results to its users. In this episode, we have two special guests, Judy and Giora, who are going to talk to us about explainable models for learning analytics. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Judy Kay. I'm from the University of Sydney in Australia and I head the human-centered technology research cluster in my university, but that represents lots of multidisciplinary work where we use all sorts of analytics and one important area is education. A long interest of mine has been using learning data in a responsible way and so that learners can have control of their own data which is perfectly aligned with this topic, so I'm delighted to be here. Great. Thanks, Judy. Um, How about you, Giora? Hi. First of all, uh, thanks for uh, inviting me. My name is uh, Gio Alexandron, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of uh, Science Teaching in uh, Weizmann uh, Institute of Science. I lead a group uh, called uh, Computational Approaches to Science Education, and um, basically our main focus is on assisting teachers in uh, personalizing their instruction to needs of, uh, of students. So it's uh, learning analytics applied to K-12. Uh, our main focus is on uh, science uh, education teachers in high school. Thanks. To kick off our conversation, could you tell us what some of the core underlying problems are in relation to artificial intelligence and algorithms and why explainability is important? I'm really glad that you use the word algorithmic processes in general, as well as AI, because there is a real blurring in the meaning of the pair of these terms. And people use the word AI to describe a very broad range of things that are probably, in a computer science sense, better described as algorithmic. But the Mm -hmm. fact is, there's a huge amount of this that is being deployed every day we've become very aware that our lives are being touched by algorithmic calculation and we can see legislation that's demanding that people be able to understand and control that technology. We really have a huge recognition that Mm -hmm. we need to be able to understand these systems. And the problems are that we actually don't have very good ways of either building them so that people will be able to understand them or um, even a good science on what people can and can't understand. So there are lots of challenges. One of the big, biggest problems 
I think, is that there is far too much focus just on the algorithms rather than the whole process of data collection and data cleaning and data quality right through to um, whatever is presented to people and what is done afterwards. Uh, I would uh, probably iterate on uh, what uh, Judy is saying. So first of all, our algorithms became way too complicated. Well, when, when we use simple machine learning with features engineered by uh, humans, we could un understand them. But with deep learning, it's no longer the case. And the other reason is that AI is increasingly integrated into more and more systems. So more and more systems require understanding and, and, and verifying. I think that one area of focus is indeed the users that needs to understand the systems that they are using and, and the recommendations. But we need to remember that uh, explainability also matters for the developers. So in order to, mm -hmm. uh, to improve models, in order to verify them before uh, they're um, sent out. Uh, so we, we need to, to understand what they do in order to build our trust as engineers that the systems that we are um, uh, sending out are uh, stable. Yeah. To get into more specifics on education, can you talk us through how these AI models relate to learning analytics? Well, the whole area of learning analytics is relatively new for the AI world, but it has been growing really quickly. A great deal of analytics being done on learning data. Perhaps the most widely deployed is recognizing students at risk using various algorithms, but there are many other things happening in any of the platforms that are used in education, and there are many such platforms. Anywhere there's data, there is the potential to have um, AI models. And of course, the field I come from, artificial intelligence in education, um, which has been around for decades, started with the idea that we can improve learning if it's personalized. And to personalize it, you need a system that takes account of the particular needs of each individual learner. And this is obviously mm -hmm. a role for learning data, which we could call learning analytics. I think at a completely different level, there have mm -hmm. been many uses of learning data that have had publicity as very poor uses, where, for example, teacher performance is judged on some algorithm and that's used in a very simplistic manner and not used well. And there are risks both in education in any area where we have algorithms that are used for high stakes decisions. Mm -hmm. And Gera, would you like to give a few more examples on how learning analytics connects with these artificial intelligence models and algorithms? Yeah, well, so we are very lucky to see education uh, moving forward and adopting advised uh, AI methods for smart decision making, uh, similar to what is happening in, in other domains. Even, of course, we must admit that uh, we are much uh, slower than most uh, other domains. I think the first uh, reason is, again, the developers of learning analytics solution uh, need to be able to understand and verify their models before they are they send them out for uh, users. The various types of stakeholders are using the learning analytics. 
uh, solutions. It's good to talk a bit about what are the distinctive needs of explainable mm-hmm. AI in, uh, in education and uh, learning analytics because we do have some. Right. Yeah. Today, would you like to expand more on why you think we should be aiming for explainable models in learning analytics? Absolutely. The things that are distinctive about the particular domain in which you build AI obviously come into force. And in this case, we have things we'd like to use the data for. And often, the quality of the data is not particularly good. So for example, we want to determine whether learners know something or whether learners are engaged, or whether they are confused, or many one of many other possibilities. And when you think about each of those, whether a learner knows something, how do we assess that? Well, we have to see whether they can do things. Well, how many times can you test them and how extensively can you test them? The learning data that you have may not be very valuable. It Mm. might have huge error bounds on it. Uh, Something like learner engagement. We know engagement's really important. It would probably be nice to know if all those online students are actually listening. Um, But the quality of the data we have about that is often very poor. So the nature of what we're doing a lot of the time means that the modeling tasks we're doing are actually quite challenging And we need to be aware of that. But on a completely different level, the nature of education has um, the learner really in a lot of control. The learner can, for example, decide to disengage. The learner can decide to cheat. The learner can decide all sorts of things. And we need to build systems so that we not only allow for that, take it into account, but we actually try to embrace it. And beyond that, I think one of the goals of education is that learners build responsibility for their own learning, their own self-regulated learning. And Mm -hmm. so there are incredible opportunities to take learning data and empower learners with their own self-regulated learning based on evidence from their learning activities. So all of these are characteristics of this particular domain. So I I think another thing is that explanations may also serve uh, pedagogical uh, purposes. Like it is true that learning analytics is more about uh, using AI for education, but we are also interested in AI education. And in many cases, it's hard for novices to to accept black boxes. So when we teach them about models, it is very useful sometimes pedagogically wise uh, to be able to open the black box a bit and look under the hood in order to, to learn about them. Yeah, so these are great reasons for why we need explainable models. So I'd love to hear more about the common approaches that are being used for explaining models. So can you share some examples of explanations, how they look like, what types are there, and how can we generate them for learning analytics? Um, Giorau, would you like to go first? I'd just like to mention a few concepts maybe and then try to focus on the context of learning analytics since uh, there is plenty of literature on explainable AI in general. I think one important aspect is uh, whether we are explaining the world model. This is referred to as uh, global explanations. Typically, it's more um, what the developers are interested in uh, or whether we are explaining a specific prediction. Uh, This is called local explanation and it is typically what the users are interested in. So for example, they want to understand uh, 
the teacher may want to understand why you recommend a certain activity to the uh, students. Uh, well, several methods or, or frameworks. Maybe we can just mention the most uh, well-known ones. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. Probably, yeah, so, so Lime and Sharp are probably the most well-known uh, frameworks. Lime is a, is a local approach. L stands for, for local. And basically, the main idea of Lime is uh, to explain a complex black box model by building a, a simpler uh, model that locally makes the same predictions as a complex model, but uh, is interpretable. So we, we typically use linear models uh, for that uh, explanation model because they are easy to, to understand. Uh, so that's the line. The other approach is sharp. It is a approach that is um, um, actually originates in the 50s in game theory. The main uh, problem behind it or what I drove is, is something like assumes that you have a team of, of football players and you want to estimate the contribution of each player. But, but of course, the players play as a team. Uh, so there's like overall team mm -hmm. performance, but you want to understand what is the contribution of a, a single player. How much would you lose from uh, leaving a, a certain player uh, out of the team. So in, in machine learning, the teams are basically the features. And uh, we want to know the contribution of each feature, which is like the contribution of a, uh, of a player uh, to the model decision. How much would you lose if you leave a specific feature out? So that's, mm -hmm. that's a bit about the uh, general. Maybe, Judy, do you want to extend uh, more uh, specific uh, tasks in uh, learning analytics? Yeah, um, I thought that was a great introduction. There are some standard methods that are widely used, but interestingly, both those uh, Lyme and the Shapley-based work are really purely machine. And I'm left with the really interesting question. We in computer science think of linear models as pretty simple, but I recently was at a multidisciplinary workshop and heard a number of people from various disciplines and they didn't think a linear model was simple at all and mm. in fact we were talking about a context of um, decisions about social welfare and um, in that particular case there was a linear equation that involved gender and other things and you can imagine why people were upset that those turned up in social welfare decisions and that was because the model actually built a linear model that weighted those features in. Um, I think the whole notion of algorithms and features and bringing them together it'd be very interesting to know how well the general public really feels confident about those and even a linear equation with enough variables starts to be complex to understand at a deep level. But I will link this to another really important thing, and that is that if we do have an algorithmic decision-making system, we actually have a little more accountability because someone can look at it. In the context of education, we can imagine that um, departments of education would look, they'd have the resources, to carefully examine tools that are being used and make sure that they're confident and comfortable and willing to have those systems operate. So uh, what other kind of explanations can we provide 
users then? Yeah, so algorithms are one part of the story. Another really important part is the data collection. We spoke earlier in this talk about um, a student cheating, for example. Uh, let's not even call it cheating because that's um, putting an interpretation on behavior. They were perhaps getting a lot of help. So we've got an algorithm that takes a whole lot of data about a learner. If we simply showed the learner that um, there is some system making conclusions about them, for example, the systems concluded they do know something, if the learner could simply look at the data for them that fed into it, and maybe if they actually remember that they got a lot of help with that task, then the learner can decide how much to trust it. I think the data is incredibly important and we could easily be building systems if we tackled ways to make sure people can understand the data better as well as the algorithms. So I, I can see how there are two emerging parts coming out of it. Um, so one is the more technical algorithmic machine side and the other one is showing to the user what data comes from and letting them understand that better. Yes, but I would also add another split in, I suppose, the machine side. There are times when we're making models of individuals and that's based on that individual's data. But often when we want to make predictions, we take data from many learners. So we have a whole lot of students doing these maths problems or whatever. And if we find that everybody who has certain profiles uh, doesn't succeed, then we know that uh, any new right. student coming along might well be at risk. So the model that's making that prediction is a very different thing from the model of an individual learner and the nature of the explanations mm -hmm. is quite different too. Can we think through these issues with trust maybe a little bit further and do you think explainability can improve trust in learning analytics or AI in education systems and how if so how do we enhance the perception of AI using these explainable systems? Uh, yes, sure. Actually, this is something that we are now uh, uh, looking into. Well, of course, you, first of all, uh, we should ask ourselves, uh, what is trust? It turns out that uh, defining trust is actually not that obvious. Specifically, I like the definition of uh, Lee and C, that uh, trust can be defined as um, the attitude that an agent will help to achieve individual's goals in a situation characterized by uncertainty and vulnerability. And what is interesting, trust is something that is relevant only in situations when you, when you have stakes. Now, studying that, uh, it's a collaboration with uh, Mutu Kukurova from UCL and Carmel Kent from the Open University of the UK, research led by uh, Yael Feldman Magor, and basically connects uh, to the previous definition. Our hypothesis is that better understanding of uh, the rationale behind the system will improve the trust that the system will achieve the goal that the user is uh, intended in. But we mm -hmm. also need to remember that, that trust is a dynamic thing. We are talking about long processes. We can expect that it would uh, always be something that uh, could be solved with a single explanation. Uh, and another thing that we need to ask ourselves is uh, what do our users need to know about AI and the system in order to understand the explanations? Well, it may be that we need to think on how we also use our explainable 
features or explainability approaches to drive a sort of um, professional development process with the teachers. So that's one of the things that, that we do. Yeah, thinking about trust and explainability, trust is dynamic. Would this even adversely affect trust? Maybe um, if there's one part of the system and explaining that system help the user understand it better, would another part let them think that the mission is not correct after all and why should I trust it? Would that lead to distrust? I think it's great that Giora gave us a definition that's quite comprehensive, but it was quite complex. I want to touch on a couple of bits of it. The first is that an AI system could encode the confidence in any decision it's making and report that to the user. So if a system says to me that it has an assessment of my knowledge but puts error bounds on it, um, you know, my knowledge of this topic is 80%, you know, learners understand the notion of getting 80%, but if it tells me that's Mm. plus or minus 10, Um, then that's something we're not familiar with. Humans tend not to do that, but we could build systems so they do. So they actually are built to report when they're um, not certain. And that could potentially be valuable for trust. If people understand it, we'd have to do studies to make sure they do. We also have the fact that we live with people and you and I all know that when we look at each other, we don't really know Uh, When we engage with each other, we have various levels of trust with people, but we manage to work with them, including in classrooms. And so uh, the notion of simplistic trust is not as valuable as one that's very nuanced. So do we trust it enough to think, well, this is useful to me, is more like the question. And I think of something like GPT-3 generating essays. They are quite you know, you, you crank the handle and you get mm. these wonderful essays that this AI tool can produce. Now, I hope we can find really creative ways to use that in education and to have learners have a, a really good understanding of how much they can trust it. And uh, Simon buckingham Shum does very interesting stuff at UTS on using AI tools, which he knows are imperfect and they're giving advice to students and the students are made aware, I believe, that they're imperfect, but that's yeah. fine. We live in a world where there's lots of imperfection. We, we are competent to deal with it. In the case of AI, we perhaps need better support for the particular AI parts. Well, you, think, you, you said that the, it's uh, imperfect and uh, totally okay. Actually, that's really interesting because it's one of the common misconceptions we saw uh, that with teachers as well, that uh, they had a sort of perception that uh, the AI should be is either perfect or useless. Uh, we had some research about that, and it was led by Moriari Eli and Tanya Nazarevsky. We we saw in uh, in in various situations that people tend to uh, accept disagreement with peers much better than they uh, accept disagreements with the uh, AI. But then we actually showed them that. One of the peers, the one with higher agreement, uh, is actually the, the AI. Their agreement with the uh, machine, with the AI grader, was actually higher than their agreement with their peers. And that's like was a, a shocking for them and a, a turning point. Uh, this is a great example of how the perception probably changed when they were working with AI. 
without knowing that yeah, it's AI. Yes, there's a lot of misconceptions here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I'd like to introduce another example. I love that example. So we built a system that was designed to be what we call scrutable, which means that you can scrutinize it to work out what the AI is doing. And uh, we wanted to find out whether learners doing an authentic learning task would indeed scrutinize when the system made mistakes. So we purposely set it up with mistakes. It was a teaching system. And we asked students, for example, if they liked jokes, very simple question. If they said yes, they didn't get any. If they said no, they, you know, we, we got it completely wrong. We also did a pretest and basically um, ignored the results and so on. Lots of mistakes in the personalization. And we watched to see what happened. And a few things are interesting. There were three logical stopping points after little quizzes. And it was after each of those that the students looked in, not when the system was doing things uh, where the, the smarts were wrong. In the follow-up interviews, one of the common responses to the question, did you see that it was getting it wrong? Their comment was, well, yeah, of course, computer systems get things wrong all the time. And I have mm. to emphasize these students were told ahead of time that uh, they could scrutinize it. It is interesting. We're going to have to get the public to the point where they are aware that they can scrutinize. They're an interesting question. Was it important enough? Um, and there was one student who actually used the control in the system to undo the personalization so they could see all the variants that different students got. And their comment was they didn't want to miss anything. They didn't want the system assuming what they knew and didn't need revision on. So there are sorts of many interesting things to discover if we're going to let people scrutinize, understand and decide what they can trust. These indeed look like great learning opportunities for students. Yes, it is an opportunity for learning and it is interesting that when you finish a quiz and you pause, it's a logical time to stop and reflect. Right. This also yeah, great. touches on an issue that I think links right through all we've been talking about. In education, we probably need to understand better, as you suggested, there are learning opportunities. So we need to understand better when and why explainability or scrutability would be useful and how we can build systems so that we provide that. Yes. We don't have a tight definition of what explainability is. And that's why I actually don't like the term explainability, because what we want to know is what's understood. I also want to mention one really lovely example of an open learner model. Vincent Eleven built has had a, a body of work on these maths teaching systems, the Lynette system. You would imagine the open learner model is a kind of explanation saying to learner here, this is what you know and this is what you don't know, this is how well you know it. But he found there was a real learning benefit in asking the learner to first assess their own knowledge. So by having them stop and think about their own knowledge before showing it the learner model, which is a form of explanation, improve their learning. So I think we have lots of opportunities to learn about things like that, where I imagine the fact that you pause and self-assess would make you more able to take in the relevant mm. parts of the explanation. There is a lot of nuance to this, but I think it is part of what we need to tackle. 
I think we should mention that there is a lot of place for interesting uh, future research on the topic. Yes, absolutely. We'll see how the space gets built and the work that's going to build on some of the work that you've been doing. Thank you for this interesting conversation on explainable models for learning analytics. It was great to have you both on the podcast. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. At the end of our podcast, we invite a special guest to play a fun game called Two Truths and a Lie. Our guests will share with us three statements about themselves. Two are true and one is a lie that we should find out. Here are the answers from our last podcast where we had Jason Lodge and Nancy Law as guests. My first statement is, I like cookbooks, particularly cookbooks written for children. The second statement is, I like to see how spicy hot recipes differ in how they control for flavor in addition to excitement from the hotness. The third statement is, I enjoy different cuisines and I like to try to see if I can spot uh, how different cuisines, in fact, while claiming to be genuine, they've actually creatively used ingredients from other cuisines or ways of preparation from other cuisines. The lie is the second statement. Though I would like to be able to eat spicy hot food, I actually have very low tolerance, so I cannot do what, what I wanted to be able to do. My three statements, I was contracted to play for the Sydney Swans in the Australian Football League, which is an Australian football thing, uh, but never played a game. That is a lie. I did play in the junior competition, but I never had a contract and was never anywhere near good enough to be a professional football player. <laughs> I was terrible. I am a trade qualified chef. It's true. Uh, I, I do have a qualification as a chef and worked in commercial kitchens for 15 years while I was studying. I was indeed offered a job of managing the accounts for the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games, which was really just a, a coincidental thing. I happened to be in the right place at the right time and they needed somebody to do this work, but I didn't take the job. I left finance where I was working at the time and went to, to study psychology. Now, Judy and Giora, would you like to give us your three statements for two truths and a lie? Yeah. I can start, but who is going yeah. to, to make the guesses, Shibani? Is that you? Yes, that's going to be me and Judy. You can do that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so uh, two truths and uh, one lie. So I grew up in a kibbutz, uh, which is a socialist community in which people share with each other most of what they have. That would be the first. I was a welder before I get into studying computer science. That's the second and the third, I love playing the piano and I practice every day at least one hour. Okay. So my three statements are that I can hear kookaburras from my house, but I find mm. them very hard to see in the trees. That's the first one. Second one is I live a short walk from a park that has koalas and they're also very hard to see. And the third one is I live a short walk from a beautiful harbour and in the other direction, I have a short walk to some beautiful ocean beaches. Those are very interesting statements. We'll know what the truths are and what the lies are in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to Solar Spotlight, conversations on learning analytics. You can subscribe to our podcast and find all available episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Quick reminder that the call for papers for the Learning Analytics and Knowledge Conference LAC 23 is still open as the posters and demos are due the 16th of December 2022. My name is Shibani Antoinette and I've been talking to Judy Kay and Giora Alexandron on explainable models for learning analytics. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag Solar Spotlight. Until next time.